Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. A'udhu billahi minashaytan rajeem. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Allahumma salli ala seedina Muhammad al-fatihi lima uglik wa khatimi lima sabaq. نصر الحق بالحق والهادي إلى سرعتك مستقيم وعلى آله حق قدره ومقداره العظيم اللهم يا كريم أكرمنا بالنور فهم وأخرجنا من ظلمات الوهم ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله O Allah the noble the generous we ask you to ennoble us with the light of understanding and to remove us from the shadows of illusion and there is no power nor might except through God Ameen Okay, welcome back, everyone. Good to see you all here. Um, we are going through the points of faith, or the uh, the points of iman, as we would say in Arabic. And we take these points from the Hadith of Jibreel. This is a narration. A Hadith is a narration of the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, uh, that reports either his own words, his actions, or something that he witnessed himself and did not disapprove of. Um, and this hadith in particular is a conversation that took place between him and the angel Gabriel, who visited him in Medina uh, in the form of a human being. And the angel Gabriel asks the Prophet ﷺ a number of questions, one of which is, inform me of Iman, tell me what belief is. And the Prophet ﷺ responds that it is to believe in God, his angels, his books, his messengers, the day of judgment, and the divine decree, both the good and the evil thereof. And so we've covered belief in God. Last week, we covered belief in the angels. And this week, we're going to put books and messengers together and cover both of those at the same time. Um, important to reiterate is that uh, we must believe in these things. Um, belief in God alone is not sufficient. Uh, God, in fact, in the Quran points to these other things. He points to his angels and his books and his messengers, and he says, believe in these things. Um, belief in me is to believe in these things. And we, we talked about why that is last week, um, that really, you know, God is uncreated, and everything other than God constitutes his creation. And that these things that he's pointing out to us, saying, I want you to believe in these things. These are his big signs in creation. Everything in creation is a sign because everything ultimately points back to God. But these are the big signs that if you understand them, you will be directed back to God immediately. And so angels are that sign that tells us something important about the creation, which is that most of it um, is beyond our perception. Angels inhabit the world of the unseen and that they are the most numerous beings in God's creation. So that in fact, most of God's creation is not something that we perceive directly. And the world is much bigger than we imagine based on what we can see and hear, taste and smell and touch. So through that, we understand that we are inhabiting a very small slice of reality. Um, you might compare it like to the, the light spectrum, right? Visible light is actually, it's a very small sliver of the entire uh, spectrum. We see color. Right on either side of you know like the Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Um, there's infrared light, 
uh, on one side, and then you have ultraviolet light on the other, and those extend into other forms of light that we cannot see. Reality is like this. Um, and those, those other forms of light that we cannot see occupy a much larger place in the spectrum than visible light does. This is a great analogy for the relationship that we're talking about here. So books and messengers, they are the big signs that God placed within this reality that we experience. And so within this reality that we experience, these are the big things that we can look to to be guided directly to God. Um, we, uh, by and large, you know, we, uh, we rely on God's books and we rely on reports about the messenger of God. Uh, very few people, relatively speaking, throughout history get to live in the presence of a prophet. Um, so our relationship to this is going to be one that we are informed of, one that we do not experience directly. We don't get to uh, live with the Prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the way that the companions did. But through the revelation that he brought, and through the sunnah, the lived example that we know about him, we connect to him through these things. And so um, the important thing about books and messengers, and admittedly, I'm mostly going to be talking about messengers tonight. We'll talk a little bit about the books, um, but I'm mostly going to be talking about messengers, is that even though this material world that we inhabit is a small slice of creation, that the messengers are in fact the best of God's creation. They are the, the most important aspects of God's creation. They inhabit this world with us where we live, this world that we experience. And so the best of what God has to offer is in fact something that is directly relatable to us. It was these human beings who walked the earth, who lived lives the way that we live lives. Um, they are the best of creation. And that the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was the best of them. Uh, and there's actually a little bit uh, of a hierarchy that we know of from reports of the Prophet Muhammad about what the order is, like what are the best things in creation, he actually tells us. And so the first are the prophets. These are the best things in creation. After that are like the archangels, Gabriel, Michael, uh, Israfil, right? The big angels that God talks about who have really important roles, um, either through the mechanism of revelation, there are other important things that they do. They come after the prophets. After the archangels are the rightly guided caliphs. And then after them are the, there were 10 people that the prophet informed were assured paradise. They're called the Ashra Mubashra. The, the 10 people that he said, you will enter the garden. No question. They're next. And then comes all of us. So why is this important to understand? This is important because as human beings, we are looking for guidance. We're looking for things that will take us to God. And so God is saying, these things that I am naming here, the angels, the books, and the messengers, you look to them and you will find guidance. You will find things that take you to me. And so the messengers are the first of these. And, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of awkward nowadays to talk about hierarchy. Right, like I'm saying, like we have things in creation that are better than other things. It's awkward to talk about hierarchy nowadays because we live in a society that aspires to be radically egalitarian. And oftentimes I think we, we equate hierarchy with forms of oppression, uh, forms of injustice. And it's really important to point out here 
from the very beginning that that is not the type of hierarchy that we're talking about here. We're not talking about a hierarchy that is meant to be lorded over us in a way of saying, like, you're never going to be this good. So, like, uh, just know your place. Stay there. Knowing this hierarchy is not about knowing your place. Knowing this hierarchy is about knowing how to move out of the place that you're currently in and to move closer to God. But we have to know what to look to in order to do that. We have to know that there are things in creation that are demonstrably better, that if we look to them, we will draw nearer to God than if we look to something else. And so that is why it's so important to know about the books that God sends, the revelation that he sends to humanity, and the messengers that he uses to convey that revelation to us. We know that these are major signs of God, and that by following them, we go directly to God. Um, this really is hierarchy that gives mercy to us. This type of hierarchy is a mercy, because without it, we wouldn't know where to look. And I really like to think of it as like, you know, when you're hiking, when you're out in the wilderness, especially if you're lost, right? When you're lost, you're in a place where you are seeking guidance. If you're lost, you're going to want to get to the highest point that you can get to. Because why? You can see farther at the top of a mountain than you can down in a valley. This is the kind of hierarchy that we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a hierarchy that when, where, when we know where the high points are and we know how to ascend to those high points, we get to see the path in front of us much easier than we would at the low points. The high points are necessarily better than the low points. And that is why we seek out these signs that God has put in his creation. So let's talk about the prophets. So first and foremost, our belief in the prophets is a comprehensive belief in the prophets. We accept absolutely each and every one of them as a legitimate prophet from God. There's not any factionalism when it comes to believing in God's messengers. So, right, we're Muslims, right? We're, some, some people might think of us as being Team Muhammad. We're on Team Muhammad, right? So we believe in Muhammad, right? That's the prophet we follow. It's not, uh, it's not an exclusionary form of following that we do with the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. We accept the legitimacy of each and every one of the prophets that came before him, both the ones that we know and the ones that we don't know. Uh, and so we accept Jesus, peace be upon him. We accept Moses, peace be upon him. We accept Abraham, peace be upon him. Noah, Adam, uh, Enoch, uh, Idris, we call him in Arabic, Isaiah, all of the biblical prophets. We accept them. And um, God, in fact, commands us to accept each and every one of the prophets. He says in the Quran, and this is a point that he reiterates in other places, he says, say, like instructing us to literally say this, say, we have believed in Allah and in what was revealed to us and in what was revealed to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants, and in what was given to Moses and Jesus and to the prophets from their Lord. We make no distinction between any of them, and we are Muslims submitting to him. So that tells you something really important about this thing called Islam that we're here to learn about. Islam is this final revelation that the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, brought to us. It's what God revealed to him, and it's what 
was revealed through his actions, through his sunnah, through his example. But Islam has been a continual thing that God has been delivering to humanity throughout all of history. Through these prophets. Islam is uh, God's gift to humanity in every single age. So whether or not you were living in the time of Moses, or you were living in, I don't know, let's say second century BC, China, there were prophets that were sent to every single nation on earth, and that the guidance that they brought came from God. That there's one God that sent each and every one of the prophets. So this thing, this religion that we have of Islam is a universal religion in the sense that it is the only religion that God has called people to throughout all of history, which is just to worship him, just worship God. And there's some differentiation in there, which we'll get to. But this thing that we're doing today, uh, it didn't start in the seventh century. It didn't start in Arabia. It started with the first human being. It started with Adam. And it's been here ever since. In chapter two of the Quran, God says, the messenger has believed in what has been revealed to him from his Lord, as do the believers. They all believe in God, his angels, his books, and his messengers. So there's some of our points of faith right there. His angels, his books, and his messengers. They proclaim, we make no distinction between any of his messengers. And they say, we hear and we obey. We seek your forgiveness, our Lord. And to you alone is the final return. So the point in accepting all of the messengers together is that we recognize they're all coming from the same source. To reject one of them is to reject the one that sent them. And we're, we're looking for God. We're trying to live a life of worship of God. So in accepting God, we accept his messengers that he sent. Um, now, this gets into the obvious question of like, okay, well, the messages of these prophets is actually different in some cases. So what do we do with that, right? There, there is this sort of like universal aspect that Islam is sort of positing, like all messengers came with this message of worshiping one God. But then why do we have different religions still today? Why does that exist? So this is an important thing to understand when we're talking about the books and the messengers that God has sent, is that the theology that is preached by these messengers, like the type of belief in God that they call people to, is always monotheism. It is always to worship God and God alone. But that the what we would call as Muslims, the Sharia, the sacred law that they give is specific to their time and place. It's what you might say is like culturally appropriate. It's something that is actually going to be relevant and going to speak to the people that they are sent to. So this gets at both, uh, you know, the guidance that we need universally as human beings and it gets to this experience that, you know, we all have. Uh, you've probably had experiences where, you know, maybe you've traveled the world. You get to see people from different cultures. And you have moments where you think, wow, you know, at the end of the day, really, like, we're all the same. Like, we're, you know, we have the same basic wants and desires. We recognize good as good. We recognize evil as evil. Like, there's a lot that we have in common. And then other times you'll, you'll travel and you'll go to a place that is just radically different from where you come from. And you have this experience of like, whoa, like this place is strange to me. These people are strange to me. Like I, the way that they live, I've never experienced that before. The way that they like interact with their friends and their family is totally different from the way that I interact with my friends and family. As much as we are the same, we have profound differences. And so God calls to us with a universal message, with that that 
which is actually universal to all of us. This, what we call the fitra in Arabic, this recognition that we all have of goodness and of evil, and ultimately of the existence of God. This is something that we are all capable of doing. But when he legislates, when he lays down rules for living, he sends something that is culturally appropriate. And this is something very important for us to understand because good religion should never call us into a state of cultural apostasy, right? It should never leave us feeling like this, this place that I come from, my culture, my family, my people, my norms, my ways of doing things are inadequate according to God. We should never be left feeling like that. Because in every case throughout history, God has called people in their own language. He has called them to norms that they can recognize as good, but which will still be entirely recognizable to them. Good? Okay. okay. Um, so Islam, as we have it today, you might say Islam with like a capital I, the, the revelation of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Islam does this too. Um, you know, like our creed, La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. There is nothing worthy of worship except God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. That is a very minimalistic creed. It's, uh, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. We had uh, the creed that we would recite on Sundays is called the Nicene Creed. It was like a page and a half long. Um, so it was interesting for me to come to a religion that had a creed that was like two sentences. And what I've noticed about that is that that minimalism in creed actually opens a very wide door for people with all different backgrounds and all different kinds of life experiences to enter into the religion. They can identify with it because they're identifying with something that we all have. We all have a soul. We all have a heart. We can all recognize the existence of God. We can all see goodness in the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But then beyond that, you know, you enter that door, you're a Muslim. You're a Muslim just like any other Muslim is Muslim. And you get to have your culture. You get to have, uh, you know, your family traditions. That's all good. That can come into the religion with you because a wide door has been opened. So this is what religion is. And this is what religion should be. And this is what we learn from the books and from the messengers. God says again and again in the Quran, I'm not calling you to anything but good. And I'm not asking you to leave anything but that which you can recognize as being bad, right? This is something that anyone can get on board with. So a common theology, but different sacred laws that are sent to people throughout history. So who are these prophets and messengers? First of all, we need to distinguish between, we have the, these two words, prophet and messenger. Like, what are we talking about here? Are they the same thing? Uh, what's the relationship between them? These are referring to do, two different words in Arabic, Nabi and Rasul, right? So what are we referring to here? A Nabi, Interestingly, um, the, the Hebrew word for a prophet is a nabi. Uh, no, a navi in, in Hebrew is navi. Uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, uh, you'll see that it's interesting. Jews use a lot of acronyms. So they refer, to, we say Hebrew Bible or like Old Testament. They say Tanakh. And that's an acronym for Torah, Nevi'im, and Chetuvim which is the, the Torah, the books of the prophets, the Nevi'im, and then the, the Chetuvim, the, the writings. So the books of the prophets, the Nevi'im, are like all the stories of the prophets, the same prophets that we recognize as Muslims. Um, a Navi or a Nabi is someone, generally speaking, and there are exceptions to this, generally speaking, who comes to a people who have already received revelation. 
So they're following a revelation that God has sent, and they come as either a giver of glad tidings, like, hey, good news, you're doing great, God's loving it, just keep it up, just stay on the right path. Or they come as a warner, um, you're, you're straying away from the revelation that God has sent to you, come back to it, come back to it, remember your covenant with God, come back. So they come as a bearer of glad tidings or a warner. That's a Nabi. And generally speaking, uh, a Nabi does not come with a new revelation. That is what a Rasul does. A Rasul is a messenger. And generally speaking, the messengers come with a Risala, a message, meaning a new revelation, a new scripture. So, for example, Moses was a messenger because he came with the Torah. Jesus, peace be upon them both, was a messenger because he came with the Gospels. Muhammad وسلم, came with the Quran. He was a messenger. Abraham actually was a messenger. Uh, Allah speaks in the Quran of Sahufi Ibrahim, the, uh, the pages of Abraham. He had a revelation, although that is lost to us nowadays. Um, so this is the big difference between messengers and rasuls, or I should say uh, prophets and messengers. Um, but what they have in common is that they are what is called in Arabic ma'sum. They are blameless. They are, uh, it gets translated as perfect, although that's, that's not quite right. They are protected from major sin. They're protected from major sin. Incidentally, this was one of the like, strangest things to me when I first became Muslim. Because you come up Christian, you come up Jewish, and there's all kinds of stories in the Bible about uh, people that we identify as prophets in common, like David, Solomon. In the Bible, David is, uh, you know, he's a murderer, he's an adulterer, he's, Solomon is an idolater. Um, these are things that we absolutely reject about the prophets. We believe that they were protected from major sin, matsum. And so part of our belief in the messengers is that it is necessary. It's necessary that they are trustworthy. They, they can be fully trusted. Anything that comes out of their mouth is the truth, which leads me to the second point, that they are truthful. The things that they say are true. Whether they're speaking God's word or they're speaking their own, they do not lie. It is beyond a prophet or a messenger to lie. And that they give full conveyance of the message that God delivers to them to give. Meaning not only do they not lie, they do not omit anything from God's message. So that if you have a messenger, if you have a prophet, you can be sure that anything that they delivered is the fullness of what God intended them to deliver, that it's fully true, and that in their actions, in the way that they live, they're trustworthy. Now, the reason I said I don't quite like the word perfect for them um, is because what is possible for prophets and messengers is that they suffer from human frailty, uh, namely that they can become ill. They're human beings right? They're human beings. They can become ill. They experience hunger and thirst the way that we do. They experience pain the way that everyone else does. They can experience physical harm to their bodies. They eat, they drink, they marry. Um, they can be forgetful of things that they are not commanded to deliver to people as revelation. Now, again, like, first time I heard this, I was like, what, what's going on here? Like, you know, I heard it reiterated so many times. 
the, the Prophet Muhammad is just a human being. He's just a human being, right? Like, he's not God incarnate. He's not a son of God. He's not, he's, he has no share in God's deity. He's just a human being. And so I hear all of this and I'm like, okay, I get it. He's a human being. Like, why do you need to tell me that he can get hungry, right? <laughs> What's the point? Um, I think, you know, for us, we, uh, as a sort of like Muslim community, we have done so well at emphasizing that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and all of the other prophets are human beings that we go a little too far in this direction. We assume that they are a little bit too much like the human beings that we encounter in our day-to-day -day life, so that the correction that we actually need is back in the other direction. Um, today, if you go to Israel, you can find the maqam, the, the, the place of uh, the grave of Moses, alayhi salam. You can go there today. But it didn't exist until the time of Salah Adin. You guys know Salah Adin? He was, a, he was a Muslim general. He fought the Crusaders. Salah Adin had a vision of where Moses' grave was. And so he went and built a, a maqam there. And it stood to this day. Now, why didn't anyone before Salah Adin, and Allah knows best if it's the right spot, you know, um, we don't really, it's not a point of our theology to say that's definitely where it was. But why didn't anyone claim to know where Moses' grave was uh, until that time? Does anyone know? You would have to be a, a reader of the Bible probably to, to know the answer to this. God says in the Torah that um, he commanded Moses to go off and to die alone in the desert. Why? So that the children of Israel would not create a place of worship at his grave. This was a real fear. This was a real fear that um, Moses was a messenger of such stature amongst the children of Israel that they might be tempted to worship him in his, uh, in his death at his grave. Now, why? Because the prophets and the messengers, while they were human beings, right? And we, we do not say anything to the contrary. Please don't take anything to the contrary away from what I am saying here. But that to be around these human beings was a different experience from like being around me or being around anyone else in this room. That these people were such because they were protected, because they were matsum, they were such beautiful reflections, right? I said there are signs of God. Signs point to something. They pointed to God so thoroughly that people may, very easily, they would make the mistake of looking at a messenger or looking at a prophet and saying, this is God. That was a very easy error to fall into. And so God didn't want the, the burial place of Moses to be known because he feared for what the children of Israel might do. Um, so these are human beings, but we have to understand that they were uh, human beings of a different sort, which is why we say they are the best of creation and that we can be guided not only by knowing the revelations that they bring, but by knowing who they are. This is why we place such an emphasis on the person of the Prophet Muhammad and why we always say, every time we mention his name, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, may God send his peace and blessings upon him, right? Because the Prophet Muhammad was uh, the, uh, you know, you try not to get in trouble when you talk like this. Someone will watch and say, man, they're, they're going off the deep end over at Tatleef. Um, but, you know, they show us what humanity can be, right? They show us how good we are actually capable of being. They show us 
how beautiful we can actually be to one another. Like you enter into the presence of some people and you feel a sense of peace, right? And that's because they actually have a sense of peace with their Lord, right? Imagine someone who is a perfect servant of God. What would it be like to actually enter into their presence? It would be transformative. You would walk away a different person than when you had approached them. And this is exactly what people reported about the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, that they would never go to see him except that they left feeling uplifted and that any burdens that they came to him with were gone when they left, that they left in a better state, not only feeling better, but actually capable of being better, of doing better. And this is what all of the prophets were like. So to, to be with them was in a very real sense to have an experience of God because they were God, no, but because they pointed to God. They pointed to God in an effortless way. So that's who the prophets are, alayhim salam. Um, how many were there? This is interesting to think about. Um, one of the companions of the prophet, Abu Dhar, he asked the Messenger of God, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, O Messenger of God, how many prophets were sent? And he replied, 124,000. And then he said, and how many messengers? And the prophet replied, 310, and then perhaps a few more. And he added, a large number. Meaning like these, uh, these people that are called messengers, right? That's a lot. That's a lot of 310. Not a lot compared to 124,000 prophets. But in terms of like their stature, who they are as people, who they are as creations of God, that's a lot. That's a lot. Now, 124,000 prophets. What are the implications of that? Well, it wasn't just the biblical prophets, right? There were prophets that were sent to every nation on the face of the earth, meaning what? There are prophets buried here in America. There are probably prophets that are buried here in Chicago, right? Um, every place that you go to was graced by the presence of one of these people. And it means that no matter where you come from, right? You come from a place that received a prophet, you come from a place that received God's revelation, which means that no matter where you come from, you're coming from a place that God cherished, that he valued, and that he put blessing in. We should never disparage where we come from, right? God created us, and he perceiving these people. So don't ever disparage yourself. I say this in particular. You see this a lot, uh, I'm not picking on anyone, but you see this a lot amongst like the children of immigrants. Have you ever, have you ever noticed this? Like, oh, like my parents, they're so fobby. Have you heard this? <laughs> I have, I, I've heard it, excuse me. Um, you know, there's almost like a sense of like, well, you know, like we're, we're better now that like we were, born and raised in America. And we don't have like all of this baggage from like where our parents come from. No, like your parents and you, you come from a beautiful place and you come from a people that God values. And so you should value yourself too. You should value your lineage. You should value your heritage. And even if we come from places that you might say have like toxic cultures, you know, there is always goodness. There's always a goodness in where we come from. Like, I know where I come from. Uh, you know, I can name a lot of ills about where I come from. I come from Georgia. I come from the Bible Belt. I come from, you know, uh, I don't come from an urban place. I know a lot about what's plaguing my people. Meth is a big deal. Uh, the abuse of prescription drugs is a big deal where I come from. Alcoholism is a big deal where I come from. 
people suffer from these things. And oftentimes when, you know, we're, we're on this path of trying to find God and we're moving towards something that is beautiful and we're, we're sort of enthralled. We're like, I discovered this new thing called Islam and it's wonderful. We almost have this urge to sort of like reject where we come from. We should never do that. We should never do that because no matter what, no matter where we come from, God endowed us with a nature that can understand who he is and that is capable of worshiping him. And he endowed us with characters that are genuinely good because something in our heritage, something came from one of his messengers or came from one of his prophets. So we ought to value that. And we ought to look for the good we can always look for the good in where we come from, and we can amplify it. And that will help us uh, really uh, improve ourselves in a lot of ways. This is what the messengers and the prophets teach us. The other really important thing, and this is where I get about as political as I ever get in this space. Um, the other th important thing to understand about prophets is that when you read their stories in the Quran or in the Bible, you'll notice a trend. They are always confronting some form of worldly oppression, each and every time. I mean, think of a prophet, at least a prophet whose story is actually given in the Quran. And what you will find is that they are confronting a form of oppression. But who is the most mentioned prophet in the Qur'an? Does anybody know? Musa, yeah, Moses, yeah. This comes as a surprise to a lot of people the first time they hear this. It's not the prophet Muhammad. It's not anyone else. It's Moses. Moses, and so his story really is like the paradigm of prophecy and like what prophets do like what their mission is. And really what the Quran is telling us is that there is like this juxtaposition. There is this conflict between a prophetic way of living and of being in the world and the pharaonic way of living and being in the world, right? Moses confronts Pharaoh most of his interactions are with Pharaoh. Like when you actually get to hear Moses speaking in the Quran, he's usually talking to Pharaoh. And very often Pharaoh is talking back to him. And so God is sort of giving us these two paradigms and he's showing us what happens when they meet, which is always that ultimately after some struggle, after some hardship, the prophetic paradigm destroys the pharaonic paradigm. And so this is important for us to understand because part of our belief in prophets is that we are tasked with continuing their mission in this world. God talks about the inheritors of the prophets, and these are the scholars, but we are all scholars in some sense or another because we're all... I mean, we're, we're sitting in a class on Islam, we're learning. We are engaged in ilm, we're engaged in the task of learning knowledge. So we are inheriting something from the prophets just by being here. We're inheriting something from the prophets just by claiming to be Muslims. Because the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, told us to seek knowledge from your cradle to your grave, right? We claim to be Muslims, we claim to be people who learn and for people who learn, we inherit the prophets. And so this pharaonic paradigm does something that God is seeking to destroy every time he sends a prophet. The pharaonic paradigm seeks to subjugate human beings to the creation, right? What is the, what's the big building that the Pharaoh built? 
the pyramid. Yeah, the pyramid. And you think about the way a pyramid actually looks. There's one tiny point up at the very top, right? There's like, like if you ever climb, you can actually climb the pyramid. You get to the top, there's really not, you shouldn't, by the way. I think you're not allowed to, but people do it anyway. I see them taking pictures from up there. You can get arrested by the Egyptian authorities, from what I hear. Don't do it. But you get up to the top, there's really only like room for like one person, maybe two people to stand. Underneath that, that person at the top is supported by a smaller handful of people. And they're supported by a larger group of people. Until you get to the very bottom, it's supported by a mass of people. And so what the pharaonic paradigm does is it creates societies, it creates civilizations that subject people to just a handful of elites that exist at the very top of a social structure. What did the Pharaoh say to the children of Israel when Moses started preaching to them, calling them to God? He said to them, I am your Lord most high. That is like one of the craziest things in the Quran. I am your Lord most high. Uh, I, I, when I first read that, I had to pause. Right, because you, it goes a little bit beyond the stories that I read in the Bible about Pharaoh, uh, growing up as a Christian. Uh, Pharaoh is saying, "There is no god for you outside of this world. It's just me. I'm at the top. I'm at the top. I am your Lord, and so you submit to me." And what the pharaonic paradigm does ultimately is it deludes people into thinking that the social constructions of this world, the cultural constructions of this world are all that exists. That in so much as we have to submit to powers in this world, there is nothing beyond the human. And this is a lie. This is a lie that prophecy comes to destroy, which is why every time God sends a prophet, he gets into a conflict with some power structure. The prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, came into conflict with the Quraysh, with Abu Jahl, with Abu Sufyan, right? With the chiefs of the tribe of the Quraysh, right? They oppressed him and they oppressed his followers. This was not a new experience for a prophet. It was paradigmatic. It was bound to happen. And so one of the things that a pharaonic system sort of runs on, you might say, like who are the people around Pharaoh? He had uh, an economic power around him. Haman, Haman is mentioned in the Quran. Uh, Haman was like the chief of his treasury. They have an economic power around him. Pharaoh had an army, right? He has military might. But very importantly, uh, and this is the interesting one for us to reflect on, Pharaoh had magicians, right? He had magicians that had this seeming power, right? They could throw down their staves and they would turn into snakes. And so part of the pharaonic paradigm is having this sort of like all-inspiring power that convinces the people who are subjected to it that there is an otherworldly nature to the power structure that exists where they live. That there's something almost even divine about it. And so it's interesting, again, like, you know, I, I don't get terribly political. I try my best really not to preach politics up here. So I'll let you draw your own conclusions about, you know, sort of what I'm alluding to here. But ask yourself, where does this exist in our world today? And specifically, like, what is the magic that is used to sort of use it as a means of control? It exists. It always exists in every age. 
It always exists. That's why God points to it in the Quran. It's not just a story of something that happened a long time ago. Allah talks about people who, uh, who say that about his revelation. Oh, this is just stories of ages past. No, God is talking about realities that exist in every age. And so it's our job to, to ask ourselves, where are these realities at the time and place where we exist? And how is prophecy being brought into this world to confront it? So, um, you know, in addition to sort of like being able to like appreciate what the prophets and the books of revelation that they bring tell us about who we are, like, you know, really as like God's creations, right? They tell us something about the world that we live in and sort of like how we have to navigate it, what we're actually being called to when we call ourselves Muslims, because it's, a, it's actually a pretty serious thing. Right? God says in the Quran, did they think that they would be left to say, I believe, and then not be tested? No, there's a test that comes along with our claims to belief in God. And so one of them is uh, being bearers of this prophetic legacy and confronting Quranic powers. So, uh, you know, I'll leave it there. A'udhu billahi minash shaitan ar-rajim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wal-asr inna al-insana lafi khusr. Ila ladhina amanu wa amilu salihati wa tawasal bil-haqqi wa tawasal bi-sabr. Ameen. Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.